Welcome to Millennium Global's Q3 Macro Outlook, a podcast series where we discuss our global currency and macro highlights looking into the next quarter of the year. I'm Eve Danbury, a portfolio analyst on the discretionary investment team here at Millennium Global, and I'm joined today by Pia Sashadeva, our lead economist and strategist. Afternoon, Pia. Hi, Eve. Thanks for joining me today to go through your macro thoughts for Q3. As it stands, you're actually joining us on a very interesting day um, with momentous uh, political happenings here in the UK. It's the 7th of July and our Prime Minister has officially just resigned. As of yet, there's been no effect on the currency, but it's certainly something that we want to explore and we will come back to you later in the week with more on that. For us at the moment, global macro is at a pretty interesting juncture. Inflation is at cycle highs and yet to peak in many economies. And at the same time, growth is starting to head lower as consumers face increasing squeeze on their real incomes. Central banks are somewhat caught in the middle. We've already seen the majority of central banks begin tightening monetary policy with unconventionally large interest rate hikes being implemented and more hikes are expected to be on the way. From a market's perspective, the race to tighten has resulted in higher market volatility, substantial sell-offs and higher yields across the board in global fixed income markets and close to record drawdowns in global equity markets. For FX, that's created certainly a lot of moving parts and potential different drivers. And so with that, Pia, going into Q3, inflation, growth, and monetary policy. Within those themes, what are the main economic considerations you were thinking about as potential currency drivers? Yeah, so for me, from a macro strategy angle, the main consideration is really the balance between growth, high inflation, lower growth in the US, and then what what that means for the interest rate outlook. Inflation's clearly been the focus of the year for for investors. And why inflation hasn't peaked is that the rise in services inflation has essentially offset the disinflation that is beginning to come through from the good side as we see supply chains recover. And meanwhile, commodity prices have, you know, in the past now been more um, less disinflationary than we'd previously expected. Um, so I do expect headline to headline inflation to finally peak this quarter. But I would also add that it doesn't necessarily leave me particularly sanguine on inflation. And I still expect the cyclical components in particular of inflation to stay high in the next few months. And within that, particularly housing inflation and consumer services. So we are looking at an outlook of peak, but high inflation. And then on the growth side, Um, We're already seeing signs now that consumption is slowing quite quickly in the US to levels that are consistent with around potential growth of 1.8%. And it's it's worth saying that this is, you know, the slowdown is generally faster than what economic forecasters and the Fed themselves had predicted. Um, And so from here, we still expect growth to slow, you know, as you alluded to, um, to below potential growth. And that's for a few reasons. You know, the first is consumers feeling a squeeze in real incomes. And the second uh, factor in particular is, you know, as monetary policy tightens financial conditions as well. Um, and importantly, fiscal policy on you know, the, other, the other sort of key strand of 
of policy or of demand is no longer supporting growth. And ultimately, fiscal policy is now constrained by inflation as well. Um, but also, just as an aside, I think it's worth saying that to some extent, this is a policy-induced slowdown. Um, and for the Fed, they need to cool the labor market down. And what that means is you know, slowing demand to the point where firms feel like they cannot post more job openings and in turn reduce hiring and wages. Uh, so it's really that balance between growth and inflation and expecting you know, peak inflation, but inflation to remain high and growth to slow further to below potential. So the picture that you painted um, of slowing growth but still high inflation is certainly a challenging one for central banks. Where does this leave your view on the Fed? Yeah, so for the Fed, I think inflation should still take precedence over growth and you know, they have a dual mandate. And I think that's consistent with comments that we've had from Powell uh, in the latest meetings about getting inflation down. You know, he uses this word unconditionally. Uh, for that means that that to me seems like he's re you know, really focusing on inflation. And I think that stems from a couple of things. You know, the first is the need to keep inflation expectations well anchored, um, particularly as that inflation outlook still proves quite challenging for them. Um, and, and to go back to you know, a rise in the University of Michigan inflation expectations data that forced them to hike from what they thought they were going to do, which was a 50 basis points hike in the last meeting to a 75. Um, I think that's just woken the Fed up to the real risk of disanchoring you know, inflation expectations data, even if that data was ultimately revised away. And we've seen an element of that in the latest Fed minutes as well. Um, the second factor that I think will keep the Fed hawkish is the labour market. Uh, and that's because, you know, in absolute terms, the labour market is still way too tight. You know, even if some indicators like wages show potential peak labour market tightness. Uh, I think the, the big picture for the Fed is that uh, you know, they see generating a mild recession as being less costly than a wage price spiral which ultimately would need a deeper recession to solve. Uh, and with that, how are you actually thinking about other central banks within G10? Well, for most other central banks in G10, they're experiencing high inflation, a tight labour market, with also signs that inflation is broadening out into the service and domestic service sector. So we're now hiking quite quickly. And I think it's worth saying that you know, the rhetoric that we're seeing from those central banks is also very hawkish. And in some ways can be compared to Draghi's infamous whatever it takes stance to get inflation down. Um, and I think also to some extent this reflects the fact that interest rates are still very low, um, particularly relative to neutral rates in various economies. Um, but we're also, you know, I'm particularly conscious that some central banks don't actually need to go into particularly restrictive monetary policy, uh, especially as a lot of the inflation that some economies are experiencing are, is still supply-driven. Um, so going forward, I think that growth risks for some countries in particular, which we'll go into in a bit more detail, coupled with uh, central banks getting closer to neutral rates, are likely to see some hiking cycles being reappraised. Uh, and, and to name a few countries, I think that's particularly the case for the Eurozone, for the UK and Australia, though I totally acknowledge that 
this reappraisal might not come over the quarter itself. Um, so rather than an outlook of catching up from lagging central banks, I'm instead taking the view that the most aggressive central banks will be the, ultimately be the ones that are forced to be because of inflation. Well, I think we can agree that there's plenty to be thinking about here from an economic standpoint. Um, translating that into views is a very different story. So delving into a bit more detail now, the US inflation, as you say, is high, but likely peaking. And with that, the Fed is likely to continue tightening from here whilst those inflationary risks remain. What does this mean for the broader dollar? And are we likely to see both sides of the dollar smile at play here? Um, on one side of the dollar smile, you know, still see the risk that the Fed is relatively underpriced, which is also you know, on the flip side, partly a view that others are overpriced. Uh, and then on the other side, we have an outlook of slowing growth, and that's likely to see recession fears rise from here and also have a knock-on impact to earnings, which in turn would hurt risk sentiment and help safe haven flows, which you know, support the dollar. Um, I mean, to go into those in a bit more detail, um, it, to just repeat, you know, we still see the Fed funds terminal rate as being underpriced, you know, particularly in relative terms. And that's compared to those central banks with actually quite similar trade-offs between growth and inflation when we look at consensus growth es estimates for next year. And that includes the Bank of England, you know, the RBNZ, the RBA, and, and crucially also expect the ECB to join this camp that has quite a tricky trade-off between growth and inflation as well. Um, for the Fed funds, you know, the risks are to the upside, I think, suggested by Taylor Rule estimates. Uh, which effectively captures the low level of real rates in the US economy, but also that the Fed still expects supply to do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to bringing inflation down. You know, we're seeing some signs that that's happening, but there's still uh, a lot of expectation that supply is, is going to do a lot for them. When we look at the summary of the economic projections, they see growth slowing, but still ultimately close to potential growth. Um, and then moving on to the other side of the smile, that tightening um, will likely be accompanied with concerns around over-tightening. Um, so typical monetary policy lags uh, you know, signal a recession or growth fears around the second half of 2023, so second half of next year. And that's not yet clearly being signaled by bond markets. So the US rates market is still fairly consistent with a, with a soft landing. Um, and I think those growth concerns are likely to rise as growth slows. And meanwhile, monetary tightening is you know, likely to weigh on global growth, but also corporate earnings expectations as well. So sticking um, with G3 still, the euro, um, as we know, the euro has struggled to trade stronger, even with the move higher in European rate differentials. And now that the rate path for the next quarter has effectively been pre-announced by the ECB, is there any downside risk from here? Um, and how also are you thinking about the upcoming possibility of an anti-fragmentation tool? So let's start with the anti-fragmentation tool. In theory, that tool from the ECB, which in effect would contain peripheral spreads, um, would support the euro because it ultimately allows the ECB to become more hawkish if, if they need to. Um, but 
you know, I'm personally more in the skeptical camp, uh, given the tool itself poses so many difficult questions, uh, which which just means that the practical implementation is likely to be you know, very challenging. And without getting too technical, sorry, that would include coming up with an agreement within the governing council on a fundamental spread, proportionality, conditionality, sterilization of the balance sheet, as well as strike conditions. So there's so many things to discuss here for the governing council. Um, but then more fundamentally, I think that even if a spread tool were to unconstrain the ECB, so they can only they then only focus on price stability alone, um, they ultimately don't need to hike you know, as much because uh, we see downside risk to growth. Um, you know, growth looks like it's slowing quite quickly, and there are clearly rising downside risks in the form of gas supply rationing in in Germany, and you know, I think that those growth risks will ultimately weigh on the speed of the rate hiking cycle and the market will likely reappraise the view that the ECB can hike, especially while the Fed and the Bank of England are cutting. So uh, still quite bearish for your review. Okay. Taking a bit of a turn now um, to the one economy that is yet to see any monetary tightening, Japan. Expectations ahead of the most recent BOJ meeting were mounting. Will they or won't they change yield curve control? And are they at all concerned about um, the recent currency weakness in the yen? Take us through your view on the yen and how you're thinking about the yen in the midst of recessionary fears globally. So I would fade other investor views that the Bank of Japan is set to imminently change yield curve control. And that's given the services inflation is still so low. So prices are still falling in the Japanese service sector on a year on year basis. And then I think even if the Bank of Japan did change the curve control, it's more likely to be a tweak rather than a regime change that would, wait, would make me more you know, excited from an FX investing point of view. And then in terms of how the Bank of Japan, you know, thinking about the currency itself, Historically, the central bank have actually been more concerned with appreciation rather than depreciation, given its impact on exports. But of course, now depreciation increases uh, imported inflation, which is you know, clearly the, the issue in Japan. Uh, and normally for a central bank, the correct policy response would be to act when there are, uh, there are signs of second round effects. But I think the difference between the Bank of Japan and other central banks is that that's actually something that would seem to be very welcome in, in Japan. So, um, so I, it, it leaves me fading those, those, those views to get too excited every time we have a Bank of Japan policy meeting. And then for the yen, that then leaves me with you know, the view on, on US yields. And on the US side, the challenging inflation outlook suggests that US yields should be higher from here, but more rate hikes are then likely to exacerbate recession fears, acting as a drag on yields. Um, you know, my view is that elevated inflation and a tight labor market will force the Fed to keep hiking, and that will ultimately raise recession probability for the second half of next year and see dollar-yen move, move lower. Well, staying in G10 again, um, and obviously we touched or I touched upon um, politics earlier, 
uh, in terms of sterling and the limited effect that that's had on the currency so far. But actually going over to the monetary policy side of things, the Bank of England has really been the poster child of central banks for hiking into slower growth. Are there larger hikes to come or is a pause more likely at this stage, do you think? To answer your question, I think neither. <laughs> I think the Bank of England had wanted to signal a pause back in May, but are now reluctant to do so, given there's no real signs of the labour market slowing from here. And I think that's making the Bank of England quite nervous. Um, I think the most likely scenario for them is to continue their hiking cycle in 25 basis points increments. Uh, and given now a second quarter contraction in growth is almost inevitable, that keeps the, you know, the UK stagflation poster child thesis in play um, because that trade-off between inflation and growth just gets, just gets worse. Uh, so we're still negative sterling, but I also acknowledge that cable has moved a long way um, and so the, the story is somewhat being played out through FX markets. Um, for us, the, the Bank of England still looks overpriced um, and relative to other central banks, when we think about the overall tightening cycle, the Bank of England is the most hawkishly priced central bank in the G10. And uh, to, to me, that doesn't, doesn't look correct. Well, we can't go through a macro outlook without covering Swiss. Uh, and the most recent surprise SMB rate hike, the first hike in, in 15 years that saw Euro-Swiss trading to parity uh, and the Swiss franc the strongest G10 currency last month. How are you thinking about Swiss um, in, in what is now possibly a new regime for the currency? Yeah, I do think it's a new regime. Um, you know, the the SMB saying that they that their intervention is now two way rather than one way, and also dropping the idea that the Swiss franc is overvalued. Um, so it allows you know more of the fundam fundamental drivers of the currency to play out, and you know the current account is still expected to be strong in Switzerland. So you know, that should help the currency strengthen from, from here. Um, and our underlying you know, views on global growth should, should help Swiss. Um, but I, I see more strength versus the euro, um, mainly because of our more pessimistic view on you know, eurozone, eurozone growth. So stepping away from the traditional funding currencies for a bit, looking more to commodity currencies now, uh, the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar, both economies have faced aggressive levels of inflation, both have also been witness to monetary tightening from central banks already. And both economies have also benefited from high commodity prices and strong terms of trade. How are you thinking about the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar now as risk currencies? To be, to be quite blunt, I don't like them because you know, I think they will be dominated by equity and commodity price action. Um, so that risk correlation, I think, will, will mean that Aussie and CAD suffer. On the commodity side, I think prices should come down as expected demand slows. And then on the equity side, even though the equity market has re-rated quite significantly, corporate earnings are now likely to come under pressure when we're, we're quite close to earnings season now. Um, on the rate side, I'm slightly more bearish on Australian rates than I am uh, Canadian. 
think the the underlying inflationary pressure in Canada is somewhat similar to the US. So the Bank of Canada is more likely to match the Fed for for longer. And then just finally, actually touching on emerging markets and Asia, specifically China, the Chinese renminbi, um, gone from being a, a low vol to high vol currency in the space of three months, with China having faced another new wave of COVID cases and aggressive lockdown restrictions. What are your thoughts on the currency going forward from here? I think the headwinds to to CMY that have led to weakness are somewhat improving. So China's now in its wave of reopening, um, you know, particularly in Shanghai and, and Beijing, and that's supporting activity. Um, the outlook for yields is now also more balanced. Um, I think it's worth saying that you know, our, our views on Chinese growth are more in the, in the near term is, is more of stabilization. Uh, and because of property sector uh, weakness and labour market weakness, I still expect the um, the PBOC to, to keep rates on hold and not necessarily be hiking. Um, and also, you know, we're still expecting a deterioration in the current account as well. So uh, it, it's so some factors that have led to the weakness are are. A, are improving, but then on the flip side, it's difficult to see CNY strengthening when the current account is still deteriorating and the dollar is going up. You, know, you still have a positive view on on dollar. So, given the poor risk sentiment, ultimately that that leaves us neutral on the currency. Well, as we know, markets have been extremely turbulent over the past quarter, and I think it's it's hard to overstate how poorly certain markets have performed with acuteness in fixed income, equities, and at the tail end of this quarter, commodity markets as well. Um, For FX, this has caused and created volatility, um, but it's also left many traditional correlations broken down and has also caused distortions and imbalances in, in market positioning. But as you say, Pia, I think the potential for differentiation in monetary policy decisions going forward and the varying rates at which economies are entering slowdown should, in theory, translate to divergence in currencies. And for us, that makes for opportunity. Um, So certainly plenty for investors to think about. Thank you, Pierre, for joining me today and providing an overview of the next quarter. And for anyone interested in diving in on one or more of these topics in detail, we would very much welcome a conversation with you. Thank you again for tuning in today. Um, This has been our Q3 Macro Outlook podcast with Millennium Global, and we will see you next quarter for more views.